This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 427th episode, we have a bunch of news. I'm going to talk about a new tyrannosaur from China. And Sabrina is going to talk about a new titanosaur from China, I think. Titanosaur form, yeah. It turned out to be a, a sauropod heavy episode. Yeah, but I got a tyrannosaur too. And tyrannosaurs always lead. So we'll talk about that first, at least. Oh, I mean, it kind of worked out because it ended up kind of like a tribute to a titanosaur expert who recently passed away. And that's paleontologist Jorge Calvo, who passed away January 10th of this year. He was only 61. He's well known for his work on sauropods, though he also was the author and co-author of many papers describing birds, crocodiles, frogs, turtles, eggs, dinosaur tracks, and other dinosaurs. And he was a professor in geology and paleontology at the National University of Camagüey in Argentina. So he was a big name, especially with among the sauropods. Yeah, we've definitely talked about his papers quite a bit in the past, and he'll definitely be missed. And to go along with that titanosaur theme, we have an interview with Carrie Woodruff, who is a big fan of titanosaurs. A sauropod expert also. <laughs> yep. We'll talk about Dolly, the infected sauropod, as I like to think of it, and also a new discovery he recently excavated in Montana. Then we're going to cap it all off with another titanosaur, I assume, because it's dinosaur of the day, Xinjiang Titan. It's a mementosaurid, not a titanosaur, but still a sauropod. They just wanted to put Titan in the name because they thought it sounded good, I guess. <laughs> but before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons for helping to keep the podcast running. I'm a little bit behind on the new shout out, so we're shouting out to existing patrons who have been supporting us for a while. We really appreciate it. And they are Luke, Robert, Sarasaurus Rex, Brosis Girl, Reed, Ray, Jurassic Jim, James Pascoe, Kentrosaurus, and Taya. Thank you so much, everybody, for supporting our show. And we just finished celebrating eight years of doing this podcast. So thank you for contributing to that. And before we get into the news, we also want to thank Rachel for sending us some dinosaur stamps from Hong Kong. Yeah, there are six different stamps, but it's more than six dinosaurs. It is because they, they squeezed multiple dinosaurs on the higher valued stamps, or I guess just on the highest valued stamp. Allosaurus and Hesperosaurus, they're kind of facing off against each other. Yep, Hesperosaurus is that one stegosaur with the more rounded plates. I feel like I saw that a lot in my childhood. Mm. A pretty popular one. Mm-hmm. 
There's also a Brachiosaurus, Diplodocus, Triceratops, Spinosaurus, and Tyrannosaurus. And the Spinosaurus is a pretty modern depiction. It's got the deeper tail and the the updated sail and pretty short arms and legs to go with it. So I think they look really nice. And thank you very much for sending them to us because they're really cool and we wouldn't have seen them otherwise. Yeah, thank you. So jumping into the news, I'm going to kick it off with a new Tyrannosauroid, as promised. This one was published by Dong Liang and others and published in Acta Geologica Sinica. And it was published in Chinese. I did my best to get as many details from the paper as possible with some translation and some mistranslation mm. and a lot of going back and forth <laughs> with different, there's a little bit of information on Wikipedia and stuff. But yeah, I think I got most of the gist of it. Nice. So hopefully it sounds good. The Tyrannosauroid was found in Northeast China. It was found in Tianjin in Shanxi province. And that's northwest of Beijing. It's about a third of the way to the Mongolia border from Beijing. Just to give you sort of a ballpark of where it is. It's near the edge of the Gobi Desert. Mm. It's named Jinbeisaurus Wangai. And the name means Northern Shanxi Province Lizard. So you know where it came from? Yes. I have no idea who it's named after. I assume someone named Wang. But I couldn't find that in the paper. Mm. So congratulations to someone named Wong. It's named after you. One of the authors is named Wong. So maybe it has to do with that author. Could be, but it's a pretty common last name. So that's true. Could be somebody else too. Anyway, at the time, the Tyrannosaur probably spent its time on the shore of a shallow lake. And we know that because it's preserved in the rock of a shallow lake. Mm. So if it was fossilized where it lived, that's what was going on. The area it's in had become more and more arid starting in the early Cretaceous. And by the late Cretaceous, when it lived, the area was pretty arid. So I don't know how many lakes there were around, but presumably not that many if it's an arid place. I guess they said it was a shallow lake too. Mm -hmm. Probably an important lake. As all lakes are when you're in an arid environment. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's the first non-avian theropod named from Shanxi. I always imagine China is just like chock full of dinosaurs where you're just tripping over fossils everywhere (laughs) based on the way they're getting described so frequently. But they do have large areas without any dinosaur discoveries too, just like everywhere else in the world does. Mm -hmm. There are a few other tyrannosauroids from the general area. There's nothing within 300 miles, but it's basically at the center point if you draw a circle around it with like a compass and it's three to 400 mile radius. You run into a whole bunch of Tyrannosauroids. Interesting. So there's Electrosaurus, Raptorex, Sinotyrannus, Juchung Tyrannus, Dilong, and Euteranus. Wow. Euteranus is my favorite on that list. Dilong's cool too, though. Yeah, but the feathers. Just can't beat the feathers. Yeah. The Tarbosaurus finds and the closest Tarbosaurus finds are a little bit farther away, but that is a lot of Tyrannosaurs. What did I list? Like six? And I think that might not even be all of them. I think there might be a couple I skipped. (laughs) (laughs) The Jimbesaurus find is in pretty decent shape. It's nothing like the fully complete skeletons we've gotten used to when we were looking at Chinese fossils. Mm. For example, Euteranus is a way more impressive find. But they did find a few vertebrae from both the back and the neck, as well as a piece of the hips and a few parts of the skull. So they've got a pretty nice maxilla, that's the bone that holds the top teeth 
Sometimes we describe it as like the snout, mm-hmm. main snout bone. <laughs> it's got two prominent teeth sticking out of it and maybe a couple of smaller ones still mostly in the sockets. They also have a more fragmentary piece of the maxilla from the other side of the snout, and it includes three teeth right next to each other. They also found a good dentary, which has at least five teeth, and it's unmistakably tyrannosauroid because it's got big serrated teeth. It's got a deep snout. It's also got the jaw that has this sort of angle on the front of the jaw that you always see on tyrannosaurs. Mm -hmm. And it has the Mechelian groove that runs the length in a very specific way that if you've been looking at a lot of tyrannosaur jaws, Mm -hmm. you might not know that's what you're noticing, but you look (laughs) at it and it's just like, oh, that looks like a tyrannosaur jaw. (laughs) So that's a lot of features to confirm. Yes. It's not too surprising too, because there's just so many tyrannosaurs around there. Both the mostly complete maxilla and dentary are about 30 centimeters or about one foot long, which isn't particularly big for a tyrannosauroid, but I think it would still be pretty fearsome, you know, 30 centimeters of teeth, Mm -hmm. (laughs) teeth bearing jaw, I should say. The exposed part of the tooth from the jaw is about five centimeters or two inches long. So it's not quite as big as something like a T-Rex, but two inches of big old serrated banana (laughs) shaped tooth is still not something I would want to encounter. No. They estimate the full skull would have been about 66 centimeters or two foot two inches long, which is similar to Xiongguanlong. And others have estimated Xiongguanlong was about four to five meters or 13 to 16 feet in total body length. Oh. Which is really not all that big. That's not that big, no. That's like maybe Utah Raptor rough size. It might have even been lighter than Utah Raptor because they estimate it weighed about a quarter ton. Hmm. So yeah, not a particularly ferocious dinosaur as far as tyrannosauroids are concerned. If you were to encounter it, I'm sure it would seem ferocious still. Yes. (laughs) But you're right. As far as compared to other tyrannosaurids. And, you know, a lot of the herbivorous dinosaurs are big enough that they might not have had to worry about it. The fossils are at the Shanxi Museum of Geology, which is on our museum map. I was expecting to have to add it because this one has specimen number V0003, which makes it sound like it's the third specimen that they found, perhaps. But maybe it was just collected a while ago because there's an unsighted comment on Wikipedia that says it was originally classified as a juvenile Tarbosaurus. So it might have been sitting in their collections called, you know, Tarbosaurus SP for a long time before somebody... Got rediscovered. Yes. (laughs) Rediscovered it in the drawer and named it. Maybe somebody named Wong rediscovered it. Could be. Or maybe someone named Wong originally found it. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) If it did go from being called Juvenile Tarbosaurus to now being called Jinbeisaurus, that would mean it's doing the opposite of what Shanshanosaurus did, which was originally considered its own genus, but now is considered a Juvenile Tarbosaurus. Hmm. A lot of stuff, because Tarbosaurus is the best known Tyrannosaur, I think it's still the best known, like the most number of fossils from China, a lot of things get lumped in with Tarbosaurus. Oh, it's become a bit of a wastebasket taxon. Yeah, I think so. So, yeah, it's possible there are other Tarbosaurus things that might get their own genus name in the future. Or it's always possible that this one will go Nanoterrana style and end up getting lumped back in again. But we can pretty confidently say that Jimbasaurus is not Tarbosaurus. Unfortunately, we don't have great age estimates for the rock that it's in. 
but very roughly it's about 90 to 72 million years ago. And that means it was likely extinct before Tarbosaurus evolved. It'd be helpful if we can narrow that time period down a little bit, though. <laughs> yeah, that's a large chunk of time. It's an 18 million year gap. Yeah. Jimbasaurus would have lived alongside hadrosaurs, sauropods, theropods, and ankylosaurs. Oh, watch out. Yeah. This is the first theropod we have from there, though. So we know what was hunting at least some of them or at least maybe many of them when they were juveniles, but certainly not all of them all the time because the sauropod Huabesaurus was in that area and it's a very large sauropod. Its hips were about five meters or 16 feet <laughs> off the ground, which means Jimbesaurus probably came up to about its knee. Well, as an adult, but <laughs> yeah. when Huabesaurus was a juvenile, it was probably fair game. That's a good point. Yeah. Or still in eggs. Or fresh oh, yeah. out of the eggs. Yeah. That does mean, though, that there are likely some larger theropods waiting to be found in this formation. <laughs> I like that idea of you're just waiting. <laughs> yep. <laughs> They've been waiting. Fighting their time. I'm, I was here. You'll find me eventually. Yep. They've just been sitting in that rock for about 80 million years. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody will dig me up eventually. <laughs> All right. Moving on to the main event with the sauropods. Mm-hmm. I guess that's the main event. I think the tyrannosaurs are always the main event. Mm, maybe. But the rest of this episode does have to do with sauropods. Oh, so true. I would argue that's the main event for this episode. <laughs> By quantity. <laughs> There's a new titanosauriform with a really unusual tail. The name of the titanosauriform is Ruishinia Zhangai. And it lived in the early Cretaceous in what is now Liaoning province in China, found in the Yixian Formation. And it looked like other sauropods in that, you know, it walked on four legs, it had the long neck and the tail, except the tail ended in a stick-like structure because hmm. the last few tail vertebrae were fused together. Ooh, like a bat on the end of the tail. The paper describes it as stick-like or rod-like. That doesn't sound nearly as exciting as a bat. <laughs> I guess not. But if you think about like how many sauropods have that kind of tail structure, not many. Yeah, that's cool. Also kind of like an ankylosaur where they have what they call the handle. Mm. Also have the fused vertebrae at the end of the tail. <laughs> so this titanosauriform, Ruishinia, also had unique features on the neural spines and neural arches and some other details in the vertebrae. So that's how they know, in addition to the tail being so unique, that yes, this is a new dinosaur. And it helps show diversity in titanosauriform tails. Because many titanosauriform specimens have been found, but with poorly preserved tails. Hmm. So maybe a lot of them had it. Maybe. That would be really cool if we found that out. This was published by Jin Yomo and others in Cretaceous Research, and they found an articulated partial skeleton with a lot of vertebrae, some ribs, part of the pelvis, left leg, and left foot, and then, of course, the tail. So it's sort of partial from the legs back. Well, it's got elements of the front and the back because they also have neck vertebrae that was found in articulation. Oh, cool. And then a whole bunch of tail vertebrae, 52 tail vertebrae in articulation. <laughs> wow, that's a lot. The specimen, it's embedded in rock with one side mainly exposed. So the vertebrae and the other fossils have been prepared on the left side only so far. Some of these fossils were compressed, but the tail on the hind limb is less compressed. The type species is... Ruishinia Zhangai, and the dinosaur name is in honor of, quote, Mr. 
Ruixin Zhang, who made significant contributions to the establishment of the infrastructure and specimen collection of the Erlian Haute Dinosaur Museum. End quote. So he got the full name of the dinosaur. Yeah. Now they estimated Ruixinia to be medium size for a sauropod at about 39 feet or 12 meters long. They weren't able to do any histology, but based on parts of the vertebrae being fully fused, they think this is probably a mature individual. It's just not clear if it was a on the younger side of, you know, just matured or if it's older, like an older adult. Yeah. What you were sometimes calling senile. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's not so big for an adult. No. For an adult sauropod, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Now, like I said, they found neck vertebrae in articulation, 14 of them, and together they're about 13 feet or 4 meters long. The author said that it had more than 15 neck vertebrae or cervicals, so I think the neck would end up being a little longer than that. And back to the tail, like I said, there were 52 tail vertebrae found in articulation, which is really cool if you think about that. And 36 chevrons, those are the bones that attach to the bottom of the tail vertebrae. So it's one of the most complete tails known from titanosauriforms from Asia so far. And the tail vertebrae together, it's about 14.7 feet or four and a half meters long. Yeah, I, that's impressive that a 15 foot long thing fossilized together. It's probably helpful that it's not the biggest sauropod to get it articulated mm -hmm. because it's hard to get these huge chunks of rock all fossilizing without a bunch of bones missing. Yeah, it's also kind of cool that they have... <laughs> The tail, a longer tail than neck, at least of the fossils that have been excavated. Mm -hmm. Now, the last six vertebrae of the tail, they're fused together to form that rod-like or stick-like structure. And again, that's unusual. But that also seems to show that it's a mature skeleton. The authors did say future work is needed to confirm this. You can see this fusion in tails of sauropods like Shunosaurus, and then there's one specimen of Amenchosaurus, though they have different shapes of the end is their tails, like Shunosaurus is more of the club shape, Mementosaurus has the coxcomb shape, and then Ryushinia has the more stick-like shape. Interesting. Yeah, Shunosaurus is my favorite because it's got that club. Because it's the most ankylosaur-like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ryushinia is the largest dinosaur found so far from the Jehol biota, and it helps show more sauropod diversity in the biota. Its femur is larger than... Liaoningo Titan and Dongbei Titan, which are two other titanosaurs from the area. The Ruxinia femur is 137 centimeters versus Liaoningo Titan's about 108 centimeters and Dongbei Titan is about 114 centimeters. It's like 15 to 30% bigger, 15 to 20% bigger? Yeah, but that's if you're comparing these specimens. You got to keep in mind that Liaoning Titan seems to not be a fully grown specimen, though mm. Dongbei Titan was most likely mature based on some fusions in the bones. And we think that this Ruxinia was fully grown. So. Yes. So Liaoning Titan, maybe it got bigger. And the skeleton of Ruxinia is in the Arlian Haute Dinosaur Museum in Inner Mongolia, China. So pretty cool find. I like when we find sauropods with interesting tails. Yeah, that's great. It's amazing to find that many vertebrae 
all in a series, mm-hmm. it can tell you so much. There's so much less guesswork in, well, we think the tail was about this long, but maybe it was twice as long or half as long because we only have like five vertebrae. In this case, you really have a good idea about it. Yeah. And in just a moment, we're going to go on to our interview with Carrie Woodruff. But first, we're going to pause for a quick sponsor break. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our interview with Carrie Woodruff. But of course, as always, we have an extended version of this interview for our patrons. So if you're a patron, make sure to check out your premium content feed. We're joined this week by Carrie Woodruff, who has a PhD in ecology and evolutionary biology from the University of Toronto. He's a sauropod specialist and curator of vertebrate paleontology at the Philip and Patricia Frost Museum of Science. And we last interviewed him that way back in episode 153, where we talked to him about diplodocid, or I guess dis- diplodocid, if you're in that camp, growth. So thank you so much for joining us again. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me on again. I love it. <laughs> so before we get into all the sauropod awesomeness, um, <laughs> <laughs> tell us about your new role. <laughs> so yeah, that kind of came out of the blue because you know probably listeners are you know hearing this and they're like, where the heck is the Philip and Patricia Frost Museum of Science? Um, so it is actually in Miami, and I am I'm no no joke downtown Miami. Like I can look outside of the museum, and we're right on the port of Miami, so I can look right outside the museum and see Carnival cruise ships. No joke. <laughs> um, 
And yeah, so basically at the beginning of last year, we, you know, the museum has an amazing planetarium, has an aquarium, and, you know, they really advocate for a lot of the, you know, natural sciences, but they didn't have really any representation of the earth sciences. And through an, uh, so an amazing group of donors, the, these uh, group, this group of donors realized that to really engage with a wider audience, you know, again, they had, we literally have a full-size aquarium in the museum. So, I mean, you know, people love to come and see that so they can learn about, you know, marine life and they can come and learn in the planetarium about outer space. But there was really sort of that third popular branch of science, you know, paleontology that the museum didn't really represent. So they literally, we are building a entire paleontology department and program here from the ground up. Hmm. And they needed a curator to lead that. So uh, it's been a really exciting time. Awesome. Yeah. So what's a day in the life like if you're building something from the ground up? Uh, It's pretty crazy. So (laughs) we are at this point, I mean, the museum already has a building in a space. So I mean, we are at this current moment, not actually, you know, groundbreaking, but it's doing things like, you know, I technically got hired on in the summer and they were, they hired me on and basically were like, can you get us a dinosaur this summer? So it was like, okay, (laughs) so going and leading for the museum and doing things now. So like, you know, doing research, you know, from the museum and we have an amazing education department. So figuring out like, what are everything from like tours to school groups to digital education components we can do that bring paleontology into the museum's educational fold. Later this year, uh, hopefully, we're going to open our phase one, which is, it's a small space that's actually going to be a a first uh, fossil preparation lab. So we're going to be hiring preparators. Hopefully, y'all are listening. Uh, There will be some (laughs) job announcements and a small exhibit space about like why paleontology is important to study. And you know, I mean, hopefully we get enough support and interest that, yeah, in the very near future, we can build on a whole new wing. You know, so that's really exciting. And then, of course, this summer, you know, we're going to be doing a field program. So, you know, nearest future, we'll also be putting out a call for volunteers and things like that. So really not a lot of the things that are different, dare I say, from what the day-to-day ongoings of a typical, you know, paleo department in a museum might be. The fact is we're just, even though we're an established museum, it's laying all of that groundwork to actually start doing those processes. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So did you find, you said that your job this summer was to go find a dinosaur. Did you succeed and find a dinosaur? Yeah. I mean, I kind of cheated. Um, so <laughs> I was up in Malta, Montana. So it was kind of weird. While I was my doing a PhD during the summer seasons, I was also, I would go back to Montana and I was the director of paleontology uh, at the Great Plains Dinosaur Museum there. And I had known of some landowners in the area that had some fossils and the Great Plains Museum wasn't, you know, collecting fossils or anything there. And then when the Frost Museum was like, you know, we need, you know, we'd like a fossil. I knew of this one that had been found, but was actually really neat is it's just a tail from, I say just a tail, just a tail from a duckbill dinosaur, but it was articulated. So that was cool. And the landowners had said, well, you know, we'd like to go to, to museum, but it was in like a pretty pretty remote, rocky spot. So they didn't really feel comfortable about museums working there with a lot of crews of people, right? Because, you know, it's pretty steep, rugged, you know, they didn't want someone getting hurt, right? Mm -hmm. No fossils were someone getting hurt. And they basically said, if you can figure out a way to, you know, move it without a lot of people, you guys can have it. So I found a guy who had a team of horses. And so that's how we actually got it out. (laughs) Horses come up a lot. They do. (laughs) In, In these remote spots. It is. Yeah. You know, what was weird is we were 
in a weird way, we were so close. If there was an emergency, we probably could have yelled to the folks at the house. But mm-hmm. this hillside, the ruggedness, the steepness of it, it was just like the worst spot in the whole property. Mm-hmm. And so the, all of their safety logistics were fine. I mean, because we'd have had to do it Egyptian style other way, you know, like 20 people pulling on ropes and things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that just that just gets into logistics nightmare. And, you know, it just gets to be the point of uh, it's not safe. But what we did is literally, um, you know, I use lifting tripods with a chain hoist. So we just literally using this chain hoist, like one person can operate it, just lifted it up. We had a, a welder in town basically make a sled for it. We lowered it on it. And then this guy, a local, has this amazing team of horses. I mean, the original horsepower, right? <laughs> just pulled them out and off we went. And of course, it was great because I've always wanted to use horses in the field. Yeah. And you see the old time, you know, pictures of old timers like Brown using it. And I would... Any chance I ever get again to move fossils with horses, I will do every single time. <laughs> Is it because they are like just at the right amount of power and they have a feel for pulling things already? Is that what makes them so appealing? I've known a lot of other people who have used horses and mules, so I'm sure they'll all give you different answers. I am not one of these like, oh, let's write our daily journals, you know, in our canvas wall tent by oil lamp in the evenings with a quill pen. You know, I'm not like one of those like old school obsessed paleontologists, but I think it's neat to see how, not to say old timer in a negative connotation, but, you know, really see how the first American paleontologist did this. I think it is neat. And, you know, again, there's a lot of, I've worked in a lot of places where just safety logistics we can't get wheeled vehicles in mm. because of flipping risks and things like that, right? But, you know, again, you don't, not saying, oh, we don't want to flip a four wheeler. So just, you know, it's okay to flip a horse. I mean, that's not the case. But I mean, the fact that they can get much better grounding on a lot of this uneven topography or the fact like a lot of public land, right? You can't take wheeled vehicles in. Yeah. Now, it doesn't make sense to me. You can't take, you literally can't take a bicycle in some of these places, but you can have horses just drag out some big giant thing for miles. <laughs> that I don't get. But if we're playing by the government rules, like yeah. the fact that this is a way that we can get these fossils out safely in a lot of these areas that we may not be able to get wheeled vehicles in, I think it's a wonderful medium. Yeah. Yeah. That is a good point. Yeah. The the idea of it being more destructive. And it's like, we're basically, we have a horse drawn plow at this point compared with a bicycle. The horse plow technically doesn't have any wheels. It's just the thing it's dragging and its feet. So <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> technically, right. Yeah. But, it, but it, it was, and it was a blast. And of course, everyone at our museum here laughed because I swear to God, I didn't pick the guy because of the horse's names, but one of the horse just coincidentally was named Frosty. So Frosty the horse <laughs> was pulling out the Frost Museum's first dinosaur. That's it was fantastic. Just, it was Perfect. How many horses <laughs> so, yeah. did you need for this fossil? So we had two and I had never used, I mean, I grew up with horses and stuff, but I'd never done pulling teams, but not to sound silly. I mean, actually quite often for a lot of this work, that's why you use a team because you don't want to wear one horse out mm-hmm. and- they actually, the guy who is, he's an experienced, he does this like a champion puller uh, with teams is that it also, they work better in use. And so the same as like sled dogs, mm. you know, right. You see them like, you know, based out or side by side. So the fact is how they can actually move these weights and it's better, right? I mean, you just, two people can carry a weight a lot easier than one person. Yeah. We had some pack horses up there to help run some equipment up and down the hill, but the horses that were pulling, I mean, these weren't race horses. They were special breeds designed for pulling heavy loads. So they were the heavy movers that day. Mm-hmm. Cool. 
they were pulling out just a big articulated block of hadrosaur tail. Yeah. So this tail was, even though it was articulated, it was in three segments in Mm. an attempt to make it lighter. But I think the longest section was eight feet long by maybe about three feet wide. Yeah. That's a big chunk of rock. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so they weren't, they weren't all the same size. I mean, we basically went from like the eight footer to like the six footer to, I think like a three and a half or four footer. But I mean, you still figure those large dimensions. And I mean, yeah, I mean, I've moved with teams of people moving, you know, big jackets. But again, like the number of people you'd need, the equipment to do it, the ropes and things. It's just like, ah, just get the, the horses. They were the solution. Yeah. 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 Like you were saying, like 20 people versus two horses. That does sound a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So hopefully I get to find more big stuff and use horses again. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds great. So is that that you got all that stuff down to your museum now and it's being prepped? It is here uh, in Miami with the museum. Uh, it's not being prepped yet because we are literally in the process, the final, the home stretches of the design and then what will be construction for our prep lab. So admittedly, there have been some thought that this might have happened sooner, like in this spring. But basically, we wanted to, the idea was have a fossil, then have the space and then hire the people. So that way, we basically didn't have a lab with preparators that were just twiddling their thumbs with nothing to prepare. Mm. So, you know, it's wrapped up fully and the jacket's sitting here safe and sound. So it'll be opened when it's opened. Awesome. And it also was kind of nice. Our first year, the museum of announcing this new paleo initiative, we could, you know, literally I could come home, so to speak, with the first dinosaur in tow. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. All thanks to Frosty. (laughs) Frosty. (laughs) All thanks to Frosty. (laughs) So, all right, moving on to the sauropods. (laughs) Enough of this hadrosaur. talk yeah i know i was like i know it's like it's like it's a it's a tail and it's from a hadrosaur and it's like, oh, god another duck yeah. it's still cool it's, it's still sauropods the real dinosaurs <laughs> yeah see <laughs> hadrosaurs are cool too they are but they're no sauropods any articulated skeleton piece is always really awesome because it's like who you're looking at this actual you know the way it was when it was alive all True. these millions of years ago so I'm sure, yeah, it'll inspire a lot of kids. I thought that was way cooler than what the heck it was. I was like, oh, it's articulated, uh, mm-hmm. but it's from a duck. <laughs> <laughs> Poor hadrosaurs. We're always making fun of them. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> They're kind of ubiquitous, so it's hard not to. <laughs> but yeah, sauropods. So speaking of poor dinosaurs... You had a paper on Dolly. Is that last year it came out? Yep. Yeah. Yes. Almost a year ago, I think, if I, I have to check the date, but darn near a year ago. Yeah. And yeah, poor Dolly had the respiratory infection, which sounded gnarly. Yeah. And some paleo art that looked even more gnarly than the description of it. Mm. <laughs> I, uh, we can talk about the paleo art, but I loved working with the artist on that piece so mm-hmm. much. But yes, the whole project was really cool. It was, yes, anytime I get to work on a sauropod, check. Um, But, you know, (laughs) I'd never worked on paleopathologies before. So that was something completely new to me as far as, you know, learning about it and the skills to how you go about recognizing them, identifying them. I also got to work with, I mean, every researcher is going to say they have the best research team. 
And I wouldn't say <laughs> I've had the, the best research team. I mean, if I could assemble, it'd be like John Bell Hatcher and Barnum Brown, you know, and like pull up, you, know, the, <laughs> you know, together with the modern. But I mean, I wasn't part of, I mean, yes, I was a part of the team, but I don't consider myself a part of the stars of it. It was all of the other folks, you know, I mm. mean, we had, you know, one of the researchers who helped identify that whales actually get the bins, oh, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. Matt Waddle. I mean, you know, one of the kings of sauropods today to, you know, Larry Whitmer, I mean, the father of the EPB. These were my collaborators on the project. So it was really cool. That is great. So when you were starting the project, were you already aware of the fact that it had paleopathologies or was that something that you noticed or how did that go? No. So the Dolly story is kind of, I won't say odd, but you know, all the media stuff we did for the story, people were really amazed about the chronology and then especially the length of it. So we got to rewind to 1990. So the Museum of the Rockies had just started digging uh, outside of Bozeman, about a half hour outside of Bozeman. And they were digging this uh, sauropod site. And there was this god awful, horrendous, nasty, <laughs> ugly, hard, disgusting, what are, what are other descriptive terms? Um, sandstone. And, you know, there was basically, there was this, you know, mudstone layer that had these dinosaurs. It was an Apatosaurus that they were trying to get out, which is the largest dinosaur fossil ever found in Montana to date. Wow. Points for sauropods. Um, (laughs) But they were trying to dig down to this Apatosaurus and in this really hard overlying sandstone, they started to see like some bits of bone sticking out here and there, but it wasn't their target layer. They really couldn't tell what the stuff is. So they basically, you know, could found the edges of what they could see, you know, oh, there's a little bit of bone here, oh, there's something over there, over there. And they basically made this, you know, six-ish foot oblong jacket. And like really what happens at a lot of other museums, it got collected, didn't know what it was, and it sat in storage for decades. Mm-hmm. And then in the, right at the end of my undergrad, right when I was beginning my master's at Montana State with Museum of the Rockies, the Museum of the Rockies had entered into an awesome sister museum partnership with the Mifune Dinosaur Museum in Kumamoto, Japan. Oh, yeah. And part of this sister relationship, uh, institutional relationship was to help train preparators over in Mifune. So one of the things Museum of the Rockies did is in addition to sending like Carrie Ansel and Pat Leegee, you know, really good preparators over there to help like teach the preparators as well. The Museum of the Rockies sent a bunch of different jackets. So mm. they sent... Jackets that had really hard matrix, really soft matrix, really big bones, really delicate bones, you know, small bones, really stable bones, really delicate bones, you know, really a a Whitman sampler, if you will, of what (laughs) preparators could experience. And so they sent this god awful hard sandstone jacket because it would be really good experience for learning what really hard matrix is like. I'm imagining to someone being like, yeah, send them that. We don't want that even in this country. Get it all <laughs> as far away as we can possibly get it is good. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, it, I mean, there could have been an element of that, but it was a good training piece, <laughs> admittedly. Um, you know, they didn't just send the dregs of the museum's, you know, storage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that at all. So they send it over there. And of course, as you know, long time sauropod listeners, uh, you know, will know, um, Jack Horner absolutely hates sauropods, so <laughs> I will chisel it on Jack's grave one day that his only sauropod paper was with me. <laughs> he had a love-hate relationship with him when I was there with him. You know, I loved him. Jack hated him. Um, <laughs> and we always used to gripe about him. 
And I vividly remember this one day, Jack and I were always early birds at the museum early. And one day Jack just, usual Jack, just bursts open the office door, points his finger at me, says, come to my office now. Usually not a good sign. (laughs) We get to the desk and Jack says, you know, sit down and look at my computer. And there on these, because Jack is a tech guru, had these amazing giant computer screens. There was this jacket I could see opened up and there was not only a sauropod skull, but a partial articulated cervical. So neck series with it. Mm-hmm. And I was freaking out because, you know, sauropod skulls are really rare. Sauropod necks, especially articulated, are rare. The two together, super rare. And I was like, you know, flabbergasted, you know, not really able to probably make out coherent words. And Jack just said, this is the jacket over in, you know, in Mifune. <laughs> and so... It was like, what are we going to do? And Jack's like, well, we're going to get it back over here. Um, (laughs) So the preparators there did an awesome job. You know, we brought it back over to the museum to finish up prepping. And then Jack's like, well, you know, he and I are talking. It's like, well, what what are we going to do? And it's like, we're going to go back, you know, no doubt. (laughs) Like, you know, you find basically a sauropod skull and a neck and the skull and neck are sticking out of the hill. We're going to go see if there's more of it. Mm-hmm. So we went back, we brought in uh, a backhoe and cleared, it ended up being, I think the final dimensions, it's something like a 60 by 80 foot quarry. Oh, wow. Wow. We started working it, didn't find anything. Oh. And, you know, then we kept working subsequent years and like 20 feet away, boom, there's parts of the body and tons of other stuff too. Um, oh, wow. So it's an amazing locality, um, things like that. So that skull and neck and the other bits we subsequently found were this sauropod that we call Dolly. And yes, it is named after country music singer Dolly Parton. Uh, I hope she is listening. <laughs> you know, my plan was I wanted to do a monograph on Dolly. Now, at the time, even the parts we could see in Mifune that were partially prepped, it looked kind of like a Diplodocus. So that was also, you know, D&D Dolly, the Diplodocus, right? That was mm-hmm. a dinosaur, you know, so <laughs> that worked. Um but, and I, I knew again, because we had this skull and cervical series that, you know, it needed a description, you know, needed a monograph on it. So my plan was to do the work, but I didn't want to describe a bone here, you know, wait a year or whatever until it's prepared, finish the description, wait till the next bone is done, et cetera. You know, I didn't want to have this albatross of a project. Mm-hmm. So my plan was wait until it's all prepared and then go in with fresh eyes and do the description. That's what I did. Mm -hmm. It's still my albatross because I'm like literally today, even just working on the draft of that paper, but (laughs) at least doing the description, you know, I was doing it all at once. And literally, as soon as I started looking at the, the cervical vertebrae from Dolly with the fresh eyes, when it had been fully prepared, you know, I immediately noticed this weird feature uh, in the vertebrae. Mm -hmm. So if you look at Cerishian dinosaurs, you know, theropods and sauropods, and especially what's most beautifully exemplified in sauropods is if you look at especially their cervical, so their neck and their dorsal, their back vertebrae, and in the side of the vertebrae, they have these holes, they get way more complicated. Sometimes they look as, you know, they really look honeycomb. And these are pneumatic structures. And so we see the similar things or you know, same things in birds today. And we know from studying bird anatomy that parts of the pulmonary tract, so it's not the lung itself, but think of tissue that offshoots from the respiratory tract actually connects into this. And so I kind of like the analogy of a vacuum cleaner, right? <laughs> the soft tissue is the hose 
And that socket in the vertebra, which sort of the street term for him is a pleurocele. That's not actually an official term. We'd say pneumatic foramen, and there's this whole other division. But anyway, mm-hmm. street saying pleurocele. <laughs> the pleurocele is the socket where that hose, that respiratory tissue connects. So we see that in the birds today, right? And so even though we don't have, sadly, a mummy sauropod yet. Keyword yet. Yeah, keyword yet. We know from looking at living dinosaurs, right, there's this soft tissue, you know, socket and bone connection. So we know then in, you know, extinct dinosaurs, we should see this similar thing. Very good evidence that this, you know, pulmonary tissue likewise connects. So in this quote unquote pleurocell, if you look at any sauropod vert in the world, honest to God, do it, go to work, travel the four corners of the world, look at sauropod verts. I've darn near done it. (laughs) The pleurocell the margins of them are incredibly smooth and inside is incredibly smooth. And some, the bone textures, that's what I mean, is really smooth. I mean, some of them, they're almost glassy hmm. smooth. And there's this thing, um, you know, there was really good uh, study done by Filippo Portozo that actually looked at the histology of this and shows that you can actually look at this special tissue called mnemosteum that connects from this, you know, pulmonary tissue into it. So that also helps explain why it's really smooth. But you see this on every sauropod vert. Day one, look at Dolly's verts. The margins of these pleurocells are really rough, wrinkled bone. And coming out of the pleurocell is, imagine you fossilized a piece of broccoli. <laughs> like just not somewhat different, 100% different than anything I'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. And it was in three of Dolly's anterior cervical vertebrae, so in the bones up near the head. And they were in three consecutive vertebra. So, you know, vertebra, you know, imagine one, two, and three. And they were present in the pleurocells that were on the left side of the vertebra and the pleurocells that were on the right side of the vertebra. So this wasn't just a one weird off. Mm-hmm. You know, it was in multiple bones. Even though the these weird broccoli florets, I mean, they were irregular bone. The fact that we saw these weird irregular growths symmetrically occurring on both left and right sides of consecutive vertebrae you know, set the alarm bells off my head that this wasn't normal. Mm -hmm. And so in this day and age, I did what I don't know any of us did. I posted a picture on Twitter and Facebook and just said, anyone know what this is? (laughs) I mean, it's basically that simple. And I got a ton of responses um, darn near immediately. And they all, you know, basically the group answer was, my gosh, We've never seen one before, but this is what we would predict a respiratory infection in a sauropod to look like, mm-hmm. which was really cool. And so I basically just said, like, I don't know anything about pathologies. You know, Matt, this is a structure that's associated with, the, you know, pneumaticity. So these pneumatic structures, you're the king of pneumaticity. We got to have you. Larry and you and you two are amazing anatomists alone. We need great anatomists. And you and brought in Sophie, who, uh, Denison, who was, the, you know, is the scientist who, she is a radiographer extraordinaire. So she was the one who helped diagnose uh, bins and the whales because we were mm. relying on a lot of CT scanning as well to try to um, interpret these odd features. And so that was the team we built um, to investigate these features. Cool. I mean, we, we talked a little bit about the paper, but I wouldn't mind hearing again. So what, what did you find? So, you know, we had that starting point, like, okay, we have these features restricted into a structure that in life would have been pneumatic. So air connected with part of the pulmonary tract. So let's start respiratory related, right? Looking down that track. Mm -hmm. And 
it was also, I should just say this. We did not save this paper for COVID to come out. It was just the the stars <laughs> aligning that fossil record of a respiratory infection just happened to co-occur or the discovery co-occurred during a global respiratory pandemic. Mm-hmm. But we started looking that route. And there's when we see broken and healed bones, we see signs of diseases and trauma in the fossil record. We, we have these quite often. We call them, you know, paleopathologies. And there's a, a very rich fossil record. But it's really hard to diagnose paleopathologies because we're just left with the end result, right? The bone, you know? Mm-hmm. Today, if any animal is sick or has any sort of injury, they go to a doctor or a vet. Usually, you want to do everything except look at the inside of the bone. At that point, you know, <laughs> generally speaking, it's, you know, not good. Um, yep. So, you know, there's things like blood work, skin panels, tox screens, all the great stuff you'd hear them order on ER, right? <laughs> we can't do that. So it's kind of like a card matching game, like what looks more similar or dissimilar, right? But that's not always the right route to go because what we're seeing, let's say, as far as the disease goes, in a bone, right? We're looking at a reaction that the bone has had to the disease. So that's literally a symptom. Mm-hmm. But just an example, a symptom today and how it could be hard to diagnose, right? Let's just say coughing and sneezing. Well, I mean, heck, that could be allergies to the plague, right? Mm-hmm. And everything in between, right? That's a really wide swath of, you know, attempted diagnoses. So what we want to do is really try to identify the infectious agent even and an identification, a diagnosis through an evolutionary perspective. So that's where especially Larry came in and we were using the EPB. So that's the extant phylogenetic bracket. So the EPB is a great tool in paleontology. So just as a sort of EPB refresher in a nutshell. So for the EPB, we compare dinosaurs to their closest living relatives, birds and crocodilians. Mm -hmm. So let's just say, for example, we didn't know dinosaurs lay eggs. Birds and crocodiles lay eggs. Therefore, we would say like, okay, there's really good evidence that dinosaurs would have laid eggs as well. And we do this with all sorts of things, you know, uh, the muscles, physiology, behavior, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so we, we did that. You know, we went from that approach. Now, crocodilians, even though they have a form of a, what we call a unidirectional flow, so they were inhaling and exhaling in a similar way that birds do, crocodilians don't have those pleurocils in their vertebrae. Mm. So we couldn't look at a pleurocell infection in a crocodile because they didn't have them. So that really quickly kind of chalked off, well, what could it be for crocs, right? So then we started looking at, okay, well, what are birds? And there's a lot of things today, right, again, that cause things that are respiratory and related that cause these weird outgrowths. So a really famous example you know, if you're watching late night television and there are all those lawsuit commercials like, do you or someone you know has suffered from mesothelioma <laughs> mm-hmm. breathing in asbestos, right? Like, so that's breathing in a foreign particulate that caused mesothelioma as part of this. It's a cancerous outgrowth, right? And there's great fossil examples of this, not mesothelioma, but a place in Nebraska called Ashfall Bed State Park, where literally hundreds of animals keeled over dead from breathing in volcanic ash from one of the early Yellowstone eruptions. Wow. Could this be ash? Well, we sampled the sediment where Dolly was from, no ash. Mm. So it can't be ash. 
we looked at maybe these were cancers, right? Because cancers and tumors are really common today. And looking at cancers and tumors in birds today, we found some that cause bony outgrowths, but what's weird is a lot of the ones that cause bony outgrowths cause them on the limbs, not on the vertebrae, hmm. right? So this is you know, really weird. So we kind of, we checked a lot of things off our list, but again, we were trying to go, well, what's respiratory in origin? And today in birds, one of the most common respiratory uh, infections they get is called aspergillosis. And so we, well, they, they get it's air sacculitis, um, which is an infection of the, of the air sacs, right? Mm-hmm. So that's really simple to decipher that word, right? Air sacculitis, <laughs> you know, infection of the air sac. And so we looked at that and we started seeing a lot of co- very similar things, right? Where these infections were located, the outgrowths that they caused, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And looking at what can cause air sacculitis. So right today, like we say, oh, I have the cold, right? But there's there's many things that can cause how you get those cold symptoms, mm-hmm. right? So looking at what causes often air sacculitis in birds today, it's often another disease called aspergillosis, which is from breathing in a fungal spore. And it's really common. Tons of literature out there uh, in the poultry industry, right? Because it can just, I mean, it can literally just wipe out a whole, you know, farm of chickens, right? So a lot of work and documentation on that. And it looked really darn similar, right? We were, again, we were seeing it in the air sacs, you know, again, in association with these pneumatic structures. The only thing about that diagnosis that we couldn't say definitively that it was aspergillosis that caused, was the the causal root of the infection is in birds that have it, at least documented in the literature, it didn't infect the the bone. You know, it was adjacent to the bone. Mm -hmm. But what's weird is humans can get, and lots of other mammals can get aspergillosis and there's some terrifying examples of humans getting it, and it causes bony outgrowths on the cervical vertebrae. Ooh. And again, you know, could this be chalked up to the differences in avian versus non-avian dinosaur metabolism? Yes. Also, could it be that, you know, just the evolution of different fungal agents, you know, in 150 million years? Sure. Right. So at the end of the day, we could scientifically, our diagnosis was that Dolly suffered from, um, air sacculitis with associated osteomyelitis. Mm-hmm. So just to translate that, that means Dolly had an infection in the air sacs that caused a secondary bone infection. But we did hypothesize that potentially what could have caused that air sac infection in the first place could have been one of these, you know, fungal-like diseases. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, I remember reading your paper and then looking up aspergillosis and the connection to humans and everything. And I was like, oh no, that sounds so bad. <laughs> Poor Dolly. Yeah, it's pretty gnarly. Yeah. <laughs> and there would have been what? Coughing, sneezing, nasal discharge, fever. Yeah. Those. I think the, the paleo art too had like a swarm of flies around Dolly's head too, if I remember right. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So that was, and I swear, what it, we're not saying this just to get cheesy, but we bring people on dinosaur digs with us and, you know, oh, you uncover the bone and, oh, you're the first person, you know, you're the first cognitive being to ever see that. And, you know, however many millions of years, you know, there's all these blah, blah, blah. There's all these great like moment of impacts with a fossil. But I swear, like all the time I've been working on Dolly, it really is the closest thing as a time machine I think I'll ever get to in (laughs) life. Because we know in birds today that 
again, regardless of how they get the, the air sacculitis and these respiratory infections, they all show a very similar suite of symptoms, right? Mm -hmm. They show sneezing, coughing, you know, hacking up stuff, weight loss, tiredness, soreness, um, diarrhea. It's all the same things that we, the symptoms we've had when any of us have had things from the cold to the flu, pneumonia, et cetera. Right. And so, yes, we have no evidence that Dolly was coughing, right? Mm -hmm. Didn't see Dolly cough. So I can't say Dolly coughed from this, but the fact that these symptoms are so ubiquitous in respiratory infections in living dinosaurs, we can likewise infer that there's very strong possibility that extinct dinosaurs with respiratory infections had these same symptoms. And so the fact is you can hold that vertebra, you know, one of the vertebrae that's infected. So you can hold that vertebra in your hand from Dolly and see these infections and have a pretty good idea that 150 million years ago, Dolly felt just as crummy when it was sick as we all have felt when we've had a respiratory illness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for our listeners, where's the best place to find out more about you and your work online? Definitely through my social media. So Twitter, um, um, you can look me up at Doublebeam, which it, that's what the name Diplodocus means is Doublebeam. There is some info on the Frost Sciences website, but as the program builds, we're going to be expanding more and more. And as a teaser of sorts, there is in development a plan that the actual Dolly fossil will be on display at some time uh, at the Museum of the Rockies. And so cool. right now it's in collections for researchers to see. So, you know, hopefully in the not too terribly distant future, you too will be able to get up close and personal with uh, our dear sick Dolly. Excellent. Nice. Looking forward to your monograph too. Oh God, I can't wait to get that albatross. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much for joining us. That was an amazing discussion. And I love all the details about Dolly and the horses. Oh yeah. And all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, anytime. And I, I am always down to talk sauropod. Yes. So. Thanks again, Carrie, for the fantastic interview. In just a minute, we'll get into our dinosaur of the day but first we're going to pause for one last sponsor break hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Xinjiang Titan, which was a request from PaleoMike716 via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. I also happened to find the pinyin for this dinosaur. So you could also call it Xinjiang Zhulong. 
Oh, interesting. So it ends in long, which often is just translated as Saurus. But in this case, they translated it as Titan. I think it's the Zhulong that makes it Titan. That's my guess. I don't know Chinese well enough to know. (laughs) (laughs) It was a mementosaurid sauropod that lived in the Middle Jurassic and what is now Xinjiang, China, in the Chikatai Formation. And the standout feature of this mementosaurid, you might guess, since it's a mementosaurid, Mm. is its extremely long neck. Yeah, they do tend to have just insane necks. Yes. They have necks like diplodocids have tails. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And the neck of Xinjiang Titan was even longer than Mementosaurus. There's one Mementosaurus species neck estimated to be about 39 feet or 12 meters long, which is, there are dinosaurs that long, (laughs) their Mm -hmm. whole bodies. But Xinjiang Titan's neck is estimated to be up to 49 feet or 15 meters long. Oh, boy. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, it had the longest neck among mementosaurids that are known so far. Hmm. That's quite a feat. I wish there was a way to know the extremes of dinosaurs. Like, we'll never know exactly how big the biggest dinosaur is because we won't know if we found the biggest one. Mm Mm-hmm. But I would love to know, yeah, how long could those necks get? I mean, I wouldn't have guessed 50 feet. (laughs) (laughs) That's ridiculous. Yeah. That's a lot of stress on the shoulders and the base of the neck to hold that off the ground. Yes, that's true. So, but like I said, there might be other dinosaurs out there with longer necks. We just don't have enough fossils to confirm. So, for example, Supersaurus may have had a neck that was up to nearly 56 feet or 17 meters long. Maybe. Now... Xinjiang Titan is estimated to be about 98 to 105 feet or 30 to 32 meters long and weigh 40 metric tons. Its thigh bone that was found is about 5.4 feet or 1.65 meters long. Just the thigh bone. (laughs) Yeah, that's very big, but it's in the realm of pretty normal for large, really large sauropods. Yeah. It did have relatively short hind limbs, and it also had a long whip-like tail, and it stood on four columnar legs, typical of sauropods. The type species is Xinjiang Titan shanshanensis. They found an incomplete skeleton, but it includes a very complete vertebral column, the neck, and a nearly complete tail. Oh, nice. So that estimate of the neck isn't just a big extrapolation from one or two vertebra. No, it's really cool. It's the most complete vertebral or spinal column found in Asia so far. These vertebrae were all found articulated in situ. The neck had 18 vertebrae and together is estimated to be that 49 feet or 15 meters long. This is according to Zhang and others in 2018. Yeah, I want to get into some details on the neck, but first we need to go over some definitions and I got these definitions, thank you, to sauropod vertebra picture of the week. So the main part of the vertebra is the centrum. And then there's a ball in the front of the centrum called the condyle. And then there's a socket at the back of the centrum called the cotyle. And the condyle and the cotyle fit together. So like a ball and socket. Mm -hmm. Now there's a range for how long the neck was. And that's based on whether you use the minimum or maximum centrum length in your calculations. And that's based on whether or not you include the front or anterior condyle, because sometimes they're completely buried in the cotyles. 
And sometimes, like in camels, they don't reach each other. <laughs> you also have to take into account how much cartilage you assume was in the neck. Yeah. So basically how close together the bones are. Yeah. Because they weren't going bone to bone, but there might have been a little gap or a whole bunch of gap. Yes. So the neck might have been shorter or longer, depending on how you calculate it. And Zhang and others, they use the maximum centrum lengths. However, Matt Wadel on Sauropod Vertebra Picture of the Week estimated the neck to be closer to about 44 feet or 13.4 meters long using the minimum centrum lengths, partly based on condyles being buried in the cotyles in a couple of those vertebrae. Oh, only 44 feet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you it's... call that a neck. <laughs> <laughs> so in addition to the neck, they also found part of the skull, part of the pelvis, and most of the left hind limb. These fossils were found in 2012 by a joint expedition between Jilin University, Shenyang Normal University, and Xinjiang Geological Survey Institute. And Xinjiang Titan was described in 2013 by Wu Wenhao and others. Well, that one got jumped right to the top of the list. They found it in 2012 and described it in 2013. Probably because of the neck. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot of preparation work to do, digging out a 40-foot neck and all that work. It's impressive. Yeah. Actually, no, it wasn't because of the neck, because originally they described only two neck vertebrae in addition to other vertebrae, part of the pelvis and hind limb. But then Zhang and others re-described all that material and included those 18 neck vertebrae in 2018. And parts of the skeleton were left unexposed and unexcavated the first time around. Okay. So it did take them longer to get through all of that. Yeah. But they knew that there was something there mm -hmm. and they could name it. The genus name refers to Xinjiang and the species name refers to the alternative name for Shanshan, the county where it was found. It was named after the Shanshan Kingdom. And the type specimen of Xinjiang Titan is at the Shanshan Geological Museum. And our fun fact of the day is that the first ever mounted dinosaur display drew huge crowds, but it remained the only mounted skeleton for 15 years. Oh. Maybe I should say only mounted dinosaur skeleton of actual dinosaur fossils. Hmm. So that dinosaur, you may already know it, it's Hadrosaurus <laughs> at the Academy of Sciences in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Good old Hattie. Yeah, I like to call it Hattie too, even though I think technically the nickname mostly applies to the sculpture in Haddonfield, New Jersey, yeah. where it was found in 1858. But I mean, it's the same animal. Mm -hmm. It's just a sculpture of that Hattie. Mm -hmm. You know, they're all Hattie. <laughs> It was described the same year that it was found by Lady, but it wasn't put on display for another 10 years in 1868. So that was when the first ever dinosaur mount went up. And yes, it was the first ever dinosaur skeleton put on display anywhere in the entire world. It was mounted by Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins, the same guy who made the Crystal Palace dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. It was mounted in basically the same strategy as dinosaurs are today, with the skeleton held up by a metal structure, sort of estimating a lifelike pose. And they also had sculpted bones filling in the missing pieces, which was the vast majority of the bones in this case, because I think it was only like 10% complete, if I remember right. This was 14 years after Hawkins did the Crystal Palace dinosaurs, so he was well acquainted with dinosaur bones. Although this dinosaur is so much more realistic and accurate to what we think dinosaurs looked like than the Crystal Palace dinosaurs were. Well, a lot happened in that time. Yeah, we had found a lot more. 
It is still in a kangaroo pose, actually maybe even more than a kangaroo pose. It's almost more like a tripod pose because they put the legs so far back on the body that the tail basically goes straight down. It's just like the tip touching the ground. One place said it was like three stories tall, which Ooh. is crazy for a hadrosaurus. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine how vertically they mounted it. According to Hoag Levins, it massively increased museum visitor numbers. Before it was unveiled, before Hattie was up in the mount, the museum got about 30,000 visitors a year. But the first year Hattie was on display, that visitor number went up to 66,000. And wow. the next year, it was up to 100,000 visitors. Dinosaurs are awesome. Yes, <laughs> they're very inspirational. And everyone wanted to see it. It was the only place you could see anything like that anywhere in the world. So it presumably attracted visitors from all over the world. Mm -hmm. That increase in visitorship led them to switch to the larger museum space that they still use today. So Hattie was really good for the museum. Oh, good job, Hattie. <laughs> Levin said, quote, in 1876, the Haddonfield dinosaur skeleton was a featured exhibit at the Centennial Exhibition of Scientific and Industrial Wonders in Philadelphia's Fairmont Park, where Edward Drinker Cope served as a consultant on prehistoric life exhibits. The fossil shared the limelight with the world's largest steam engine and the torch of the yet-to-be-completed Statue of Liberty, end quote. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Gives you an idea of just how many people wanted to see this thing. Mm -hmm. Even with that huge public interest, Hattie still remains the only mounted dinosaur anywhere for 15 years. A copy was made for Central Park, but was destroyed by Boss Tweed. We talked about that. That was among several other sculptures made by Hawkins. It was supposed to be like a Crystal Palace dinosaurs thing, but in yeah. Central Park, and it was ruined. C Central Park almost had dinosaurs. It did. It would have been really cool. There was a copy made and shipped to the Royal Scottish Museum in Edinburgh in 1879, and that makes that the first dinosaur put on display in Europe was a copy of Hattie. <laughs> the Smithsonian also got a copy in the 1870s, and several other copies were made for other places in the world, which means Hattie was basically the original T-Rex, the ubiquitous dinosaur that every natural history museum needed because everyone wanted to see it. And I just love that because now people look at hadrosaurs and they're like, that's eh, just a duck-billed dinosaur. I'm not interested. But back in the 1870s, it's a big deal. It was a really big deal. There are still hadrosaur enthusiasts today. There are. And I love Hattie. <laughs> you do. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thank you so much for listening. If you want links to the stories that we covered today, then head over to our website where you can find them in our show notes. And that's at inodino.com. Thanks again. And until next time. Good day.